Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. The Chicago Police Department has spent nearly $70 million on overtime in the first six months of this year. Mayor Lori Lightfoot says she's, quote, angry and frustrated about it, and she's looking to police superintendent Eddie Johnson for answers. This comes at a time when the mayor is trying to figure out how to plug the city's $838 million budget shortfall. Sun-Times City Hall reporter Fran Spillman has been following the story, and she explains that things can be traced back to the early days of the Emanuel administration. He started out by eliminating 1,400 police vacancies. He closed police stations and shrunk some of the police areas, and he ended what he called the shell game of carrying these vacancies every year with no intention of filling them. And then when, when violence spiked, he started relying increasingly having, heavily on overtime to mask those manpower shortages. So overtime went from something like $46 million in 2011 to almost $200 million or thereabouts. It was hugely over. And then, of course, in 2016, when violence was off the charts and homicides spiked, he was forced to reverse course and start growing the police department back from its shrunken days. I mean, he, you know, it had really gotten to the point of a manpower crisis. So he, he ordered a two-year hiring surge to add 1,000 officers. The question now is, with all the manpower, and manpower at a, at a 10-year high at least, and with this technology at an all-time high, why is it that the police department is on the same path to run away over time? So how, how is the department responding to that question? Because Mayor Lightfoot, she says, look, the city cannot afford this. Well, the, the troubling thing about this is that two years ago, um, Joe Ferguson, the inspector general, had a report where he took aim at the overtime in the police department, and he said they literally had no controls, inefficient management uh, to eliminate fraud, to prevent officer fatigue, all of that stuff. Uh, Eddie Johnson considered that audit so damaging to the department's credibility. He literally rushed back to work uh, shortly after he had his kidney transplant, and he said that he was going to Stop using overtime as a manpower uh, technique. That strategy had run its course, and he was going to start holding the supervisors accountable, conduct random audits to make sure uh, he was going to finally bring them into the uh, 21st century by doing the double swipe system, the electronic timekeeping that every other department has had. Um, He said he was going to revise the department's directives. But If he really did all that, how could it be still as high as it is? That's the question. And Lightfoot, remember, she has got to prove to Chicago taxpayers that she is doing everything she can 
to be a good steward of their money, to save money she, before she goes and asks them to cough up even more money in taxes. So has Superintendent Johnson given any response so far? Any explanation for why we're seeing this number? The department issued a statement to me saying that they were going to finally begin the final step of electronic timekeeping, uh, that it was aware that uh, they've got to be you know, more careful with money, but they also uh, are not going to sacrifice public safety. Just a generic statement. Ferguson is now going back and doing a follow-up audit to see what exactly, what promises did Johnson keep, if any. Uh, But he was pretty upset, and he believes that um, the report that I received and the report, the the Freedom of Information request information that I got indicates that they can't possibly be doing all that they promised that they were going to do two years ago. Fran, I want you to put this into another context for us. This is happening at a time when there are calls from every quarter to reduce violence in the city. The mayor says it's a priority for her, but she's also said she thinks the department can work more efficiently and reduce violence at the same time. Is leadership at CPD on the same page? You know, she says that the city can walk and chew gum at the same time, that with the manpower additions that we have, with the additional detectives, and with all the technology and all the spending that has gone on in that area, that just because we have violence doesn't mean that you can spend willy-nilly on overtime and not have any supervision or any accountability about it. She believes we can do both and that we must do both and that the taxpayers can't afford not to do both. Johnson is being evaluated now. The mayor agreed to keep him through the summer, not make a change, because that would would not have been a good thing to, uh, in the middle of the, the period when violence traditionally surges, when the warm weather comes, she didn't want to make a change. But she said that after the summer was over, which it is now, that she would evaluate Superintendent Johnson on a longer-term basis. This has got to be at least part of the equation. His stewardship financially, his stewardship administratively, as well as on the crime front. Uh, They are making progress on crime. They are making shootings are coming down, homicides are coming down, even though we have still some very violent weekends and some horrible individual incidents. But this has got to be part of the equation, too. Superintendent Johnson wants to stay at least until April when his, I believe it's April when his, he is fully vested in his superintendent's pension. Uh, but we'll see. Now, I, I want you to give us a better understanding of how much of a dent this could make in the budget shortfall the city is facing. Even if they cut back on that $67.6 million overtime uh, price tag, that's a relatively... I'm, I'm assuming a relatively small amount of money in the larger scheme of things. So how much of this is about the dollars and how much of this is about the optics that Mayor Lightfoot is facing? I think it's both. If they continue on this path, they'll have spent something like 130 some odd million, 135 million this year. Um, in, in 2011, that number was 46 million. So you could, you could save 90 to 100 million dollars if you allow it to go on that path versus not. So it is tens of millions of dollars, but it also is about what it looks like to the taxpayers and laying the groundwork 
for asking the taxpayers who are born an enormous burden already just to chip away at the pension crisis to dig deeper into their pockets yet again. Remember, Rahm Emanuel more than doubled property taxes. He raised a ton of other taxes on everything from parking and all the fines and the hotel tax and just on and on and on. And yet we are still $838 million in the hole and facing another pension next year. But she's got to show the taxpayers that she's cutting somewhere. Well, this brings to mind the question about this police and fire academy that was planned for the West Side at about $95 million. I was planning. What's the status on that? Well, she surprised people by saying that not only does she want to forge ahead with the project, but she feels that we need to make it bigger and better. And uh, it's not surprising in that she was the former police board president. She knows full well that the academy that this police department has now is antiquated and needs to be replaced. Well, I want to take a a slight turn. Just yesterday, a group of progressive aldermen and labor groups released a plan they say could save the the city $4.5 billion this year, much more than the budget gap we're facing. What are they calling for? Well, they're calling for every tax under the sun. <laughs> they want a 3.5% city income tax on Chicagoans and suburbanites earning more than 100000 a year. They want a financial transaction tax on the exchanges, even though uh, the uh, that is prohibited by both state and federal law. Um, they want a 3.5% tax on office leases, even though Harold Washington tried that in the 80s and a court, uh, a judge said no before he dropped the idea and replaced it with a property tax. They want a 1% tax on industrial leases. They want the transfer tax on a million-dollar homes. They want a sales tax on luxury goods and services. Um, You know, there isn't a tax they don't want to raise on wealthier people. They want to even the playing field between the haves and the have-nots. And they want to spend, you know, something like $2 billion of that money on affordable housing, reopening shuttered mental health uh, centers, uh, providing free child care and education for kids under five. They want year, year-end jobs at $15 an hour for young people. Uh, they have any number of things that they want to spend this money on, and that would also create this pot of money that would, create, would be able to solve the shortfall and also deal with the pension cliff. But Lori Lightfoot has said that while she wants to lessen the burden on the poor people and the middle class, she also does not want to drive businesses out of Chicago. They want to reinstate the head tax, for example, that Rahm Emanuel phased out because it was such a terrible thorn in the side of business because it's a job killer. It basically is a per-job, per-month tax. They want to reinstate it, and they want to quadruple it to four uh, times what it was uh, to the four, from the $4 to $16 an employee. Lightfoot has said no way to that. She has said no way to the transaction tax because she knows damn well that uh, the exchanges do not need to be here. They could be somewhere else. They could flip a switch and they could move. The days when Richard J. Daly created the head tax, there was a feeling, and it probably was right at the time, 
that businesses needed to be downtown in Chicago and that where are they going to go? Well, you know, <laughs> with computers, you could be almost anywhere and operate your business. So those days are over. She has to be careful. All right. That's Suntime City Hall reporter Fran Spillman. Fran, thanks. You're welcome. President Trump has made eliminating environmental regulations a priority for his office. Last week, the administration announced its plans to roll back energy-efficient light bulbs. Last month, the administration announced a plan to roll back methane emissions regulations. And around that same time, the administration put forth changes that would significantly weaken the Endangered Species Act, which protects 1,600 plant and animal species. According to the New York Times, this administration has made more than 80 environment-related policy changes and rollbacks. And rollbacks like the come at a precarious time. This last July has been confirmed by meteorologists as Earth's hottest month on record. Joining me now for more on this issue is Lynn Scarlett, Vice President of Policy and Government Relations at the Nature Conservancy. She's also the former Deputy Secretary and Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. Department of the Interior during the Bush administration. Lynn, welcome to The Morning Shift. I'm happy to be with you. So as I mentioned, there have been dozens of rollbacks to U.S. environmental policy. Remind us what some of those rollbacks are that most alarm scientists and environmentalists. You know, there's a energy dominance theme that the administration put forward. And under that, they've done a whole lot of rollbacks of measures that actually were designed to try and enhance uh, the U.S. engagement in climate action. And so those rollbacks, things like no longer requiring agencies to consider climate change across their decision-making, changes in uh, energy efficiency requirements, that sort of thing, really have long-term and concerning implications. Well, many of these changes come in in what is a highly politicized environment. Talk about the challenges of navigating environmental policy when we're in such a partisan time. You know, the Nature Conservancy really tries to work in a very nonpartisan way and across uh, Republicans and Democrats. And so in this context, we've tried to find those things that we can do that do have support in advance. And one of those is, for example, investment in nature uh, in cities, cities like Chicago. There's a lot of support for uh, expanding tree canopy, expanding green spaces in cities, uh, because those are good for people, they're good for nature, uh, they can el- actually help manage things like stormwater. So on the plus side, we're trying to focus on those points of convergence. Uh, on the other hand, we have to stand up and be counted where these um, these problems or these challenges exist. And so we vigorously try to weigh in. There are other environmental groups that are actually engaged in lawsuits. So the story's not yet over. We'll see what happens in the long run. Uh, But when we weigh in, we try to weigh in uh, based on facts uh, showing, uh, you know, if you're rolling back, for example, provisions on energy efficiency, you really are, in the end, not benefiting people who could benefit from all the innovations that we have on new light bulbs, new kinds of uh, vehicles, all sorts of things that will make our lives better. So, uh, you know, we have to stand up. We have to we have to use our voices, uh, but at the same time try to find some positive solutions that can move forward. What strategy have you taken when it comes to engaging broader audiences in, in this conversation? You know, in the climate conversation in particular, which, as I think we all know, has been so controversial and and having gotten more so um, during these last several years, uh, we're looking out 
to reach to new audiences. So we have a great big shellfish growers coalition. You know, shellfish growers, people that gather oysters to put food on our table, they are really adversely affected, and not in the future, but now by climate change. So ocean acidification, warming waters are really affecting their livelihoods. So we reach out to folks like that here in um, places like Illinois, the Midwest. Farmers are a big audience for us because, again, they're facing the challenges of climate change now, not later. We saw the flooding this year that postponed the growing season by a, a length of time that really affects their pockets, affects our ability to put food on our table. So reaching out to those audiences, having those discussions about real problems that are now problems, gives us some new voices and ways to uh, to broaden support for climate action. We've been talking about policy change at the federal level, but we know that individual cities also play a really important role in protecting nature and, and preparing for some of the impacts of climate change. What are some of the latest city trends you're seeing right now? There's a real good news story on the front of cities. So after the Paris Agreement, many cities stood up and said, we're in, we're part of the plan. Uh, Chicago, right here in Illinois, has its uh, climate action plan. And some of the trends we're seeing are focusing on, for example, expanding tree canopy. Uh, you know, tree canopy can reduce the effects of extreme heat, but it can also, if put in the right places, reduce the need for cooling and therefore more energy use for air conditioning and so forth. Uh, We're also seeing, for example, urban greening when it comes to stormwater management. The Nature Conservancy very involved in those efforts in cities like Chicago, cities like Philadelphia. But we're also seeing cities playing a leadership role in thinking of new transportation systems. For the last two decades, much of the focus on climate action has been on the energy power sector. But guess what? The transportation sector is now the number one emitter. And so we're seeing the whole Northeast and cities across the Northeast engaged in a transportation climate initiative. So we're seeing innovation there, buildings and building materials. And cities are leading the way because that's where these solutions really touch down. And how do you hope those city-based solutions bubble up to something perhaps at the national or federal level? We see cities and then states and then nations and then indeed the globe all really interconnected. So cities, as they pave their way on new transportation solutions, on uh, building innovations, on urban greening, give people a sense of the possible. They can observe those actions, see those actions. That builds collaborative support for then state action. We're seeing that translate now into a lot of uh, renewed effort by by states to engage in renewable energy portfolio um, increases. And that in turn builds support for federal action. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a slow shift, both the general public but also lawmakers, including on the Republican side, starting to back into the mix and say, climate's a problem, we need to act. What are you seeing here in in Chicago? There's um, focus on an equity lens being applied to this work. Talk about that. Cities are where a lot of the impacts of climate change touch down. They are also the places where many of the solutions arise. But sometimes the kinds of solutions that we might select will have different impacts on different sectors of the community. It's extremely important that we really engage all sectors of every community and particularly uh, disadvantaged communities in both understanding what the impacts are but building the solutions. 
those communities that are disadvantaged, guess what? They're often ground zero for adverse impacts. It's often those communities. Just look at the Bahamas right now. Those communities that don't have a lot of resources, that don't have the ability to build resilience that are adversely affected. Same is true in our cities, affected by flooding, maybe because of where they, um, those communities are located. They need to be a voice. They need to be part of the solution. Critically important. Really quickly, what's bringing you optimism right now? Sometimes people call me Pollyanna. I always have the <laughs> lens of hope, the lens of optimism. And sometimes I wake up in the morning and wonder where that optimism went. But I am hopeful. And I am hopeful because of what we're seeing by citizens on the ground in cities. We're seeing farmers. The Nature Conservancy is working with farmers on soil health. And sometimes people say, what's that have to do with climate? Well, guess what? Soil health helps sequester carbon, pull it out of the atmosphere. It's good for farmers, good for their livelihood, good for climate. So it's those grassroots solutions that continue and, in fact, move forward. Don't stop in their tracks, even when the national dialogue is a bit broken. That's Lynn Scarlett, Vice President of Policy and Government Relations at the Nature Conservancy and former Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of the Interior during the Bush administration. Lynn, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating. It helps other people find us. Another great way to get in touch is by leaving us a voicemail. You can give us a call with any feedback you have. Leave us a message at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.